Hello, and welcome back to Christianity Commandeered. I'm your host, Dan Hayward, and I have my older brother here, Chris Hayward. Hi there. And uh, Chris is a a minister. Uh, you want to give a little uh, introduction to yourself before we get going? Uh, yes. Um, like Dan, I grew up in a conservative evangelical background. Uh, when I went off to college, uh, my views did change. I ended up going to seminary out in Berkeley, California, and then also in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and I currently pastor a church about 30 minutes northeast of Des Moines, Illinois. Great. Um, and I, what we'll try to tackle today is we're going to stay in Genesis. Uh, I know a lot of things have happened in the news over the last month or so, and we definitely want to address those. Um, and briefly, uh, we, we'd want to talk about guns. We'd want to talk about abortion. Uh, there's quite a few things, but we're going to jump back into Genesis just because we had promised people to uh, address when people started believing the world was 6,000 years old and kind of jump back uh, more into the Genesis story and talk a little bit more about really what what's this message uh, coming out of these verses. Uh, so I, I wanted to start with, uh, I've been on a paleontology uh, kick over the last few years, and in one of the books I'd read, it, it talked about the church's influence on paleontology. And in the early 18th century, there were people doing, and they weren't called paleontologists at the time, uh, they had a different terminology they used, but they were digging up bones. They might have just been called bone collectors, bone finders. And at that time, the church had a very strong position that suggested, well, suggest would be not strong enough, but uh, affirmed declared. and stated. Uh, what was that, Chris? Declared. Decla yeah, declared is a better word. Um, that nothing had ever gone extinct and that there was nothing new. There's a few different verses. You can look at Ecclesiastes talking about nothing changes on the sun. Um, and there's some other verses talking uh, more about the ongoing of life, basically, on this planet. So people were digging up these bones, and they were finding really monumental discoveries. We're talking about thigh bones of massive 40-ton, 50-ton creatures. And they believed at the time those were large elephants. They were large bears, uh, creatures that are, are large today, but not even comparable uh, to some. I mean, some of these femurs are several feet long on their own. And because the church had a strong position, um, none of them knew what they were digging up. They were digging up these ancient creatures. Um, and only until, I think it was 75 years later, so maybe towards the end of the 18th century, did people kind of in this uh, paleontology field, they're the growing field, had decided together as a group, they said, we, you know, these are extinct creatures. They, there's no way these exist on this planet. We can't find something similar. Uh, the structures are way off. Um, and at that point, we kind of that was kind of the birth of paleontology because it was able to safely separate itself from the church. And the reason why I start at that conversation is because the the church has a heavy influence on a lot of the things we think about and believe about. And I, I, I think that the question of is the world 6000 years old is one that kind of just comes to the head, especially in modern um, uh, America. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Chris? Uh, you know, and of course, for Protestants, we always have to be kind of careful about when we talk about the church. Um, for our Indeed. Catholic siblings, that means something very specific. Uh, for Protestants, it's a little bit fuzzier for us. What exactly does the church teach and what does the church believe? Um, so it gets a little confusing for us. Um, and of course, some Protestants would say that they don't believe anything, there, that there is nothing that the church teaches, that it's just all from the Bible. So, I mean, there's there's some uh, 
terminology there that that is a little fuzzy at times. And that's fair. That that's that's helpful. Uh, I'm often referring back to the our upbringings, I guess, as the evangelical church, which I I can't always speak for, but I can talk about where I came from. I, I know that being a young person, um, my parents were anti-evolution. And I know that in the church level, we wouldn't even discuss evolution. I, I know that my some of my teachers um, at, at Central Valley High School were uh, creationists, and they only alluded to evolution. In fact, I know that uh, at least the whatever the voting body was or the, the parents' commission or whatever had very much influence and said, we're not going to teach evolution in these schools. I know, I know that's what I had grown up with. Um, and so jumping back to the question, I, I, I've done a little research on on this kind of time frame. Um, some of the resources I, I read suggested that, that before the time of Christ, people didn't necessarily have a, a time-oriented uh, consideration for the years before them. So in, so in other words, it wasn't about counting up years before things, especially when we didn't have uh, written uh, uh, just writing it all and being able to document certain events. And a lot of how history was developed was the first dates that could have been accounted for, it would be some time before that. So for example, if you have the pyramids and there's all these records revolving around the pyramids, you might be able to correspond it to another event, um, in Europe, uh, knowing certain things. And so a lot of people before these times may have not even had a consideration of what time was. So, uh, the argument was, is that, people would have just thought time was ongoing. It was long, it was ancient, and they wouldn't have thought of something so short as a few thousand years. Um, so kind of jumping forward um, around the time of Christ, obviously there's a lot of events that uh, occur. There's a lot of writing. There was a lot of information. And sometime in the second century, uh, there was a rabbi that I discovered. I, I don't recall his name. It's been a year or so since I looked at this. But he was maybe one of the first people that suggested maybe we should count up these years and see see if it gives us a number that gives us a realistic time frame of how old the world is. Now, the interesting thing about that is that many of the rabbis around that time disagreed with him, and all the kind of the common sentiment was that the it's not meant to be literal. And so uh, that's one reason why that didn't necessarily take off around that time. So then I read some more materials about that would also that would also come up against the fact that there are textual variants. Um, Sure, let's talk about those. Yeah, okay, gotcha. No, go ahead, you shoot. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, every before the printing press, every every book had to be handwritten. And so as a result, you know, there's several different manuscripts of any of many ancient texts, and they often differ in slight details. And so like a number would often be something that would vary from manuscript to manuscript. So if you're trying to use the Bible to kind of calculate back to creation, you're going to run into that problem where different manuscripts might give you a different number. Yeah, and that's very helpful because what I had discovered is that there was a, a tremendous argument in uh, around the time of the King James Version. There was uh, some of these discussions were occurring and there was an argument be between the number of 6,000 and the number 20,000. And I, I don't I didn't get a lot of material of why the other number existed, but as most people recognize today in the kind of uh, in many of the churches we have, there's a 6,000 magical number uh, that seems to come up. But at that time, they were they were fighting about it quite a bit, talking about how they uh, looked at the documents and the numbers. And I, here was here's kind of what I came to in, in around 1750. Uh, there was a, a writer 
who was a researcher and and a, I don't know if you would call them a Bible historian at that time, but but someone who was was educated um, in the the words of the past and, and the dialogues and uh, the records suggested that they could count these up and that 4004 BC was the start of time, essentially creation and Genesis. And what was so influential about it is that around that time, you'll find the King James Version that's stamped on the page. And it wasn't there before. Um, at this time, the, the English the language um, and other written languages were more commonly written and, and distributed and people were reading more. When you go back in time, most people were unable to read and write, and they only could hear what a priest or a minister could talk about. And they may have not even touched on these topics that frequently. But now people could pick up the book, read it, and now they were seeing that number, 4004 BC. And this would have been more of the Western culture uh, because this would have been written coming through Europe, which has been very influential in the United States. and oh, Particularly the Anglo-Saxon English world. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And and so that that's kind of where I'm I'm coming from. If you believe the world's six thousand years old, you it might be simply because someone printed it on a page. That was the argument at the time. That that's the conclusion they'd come to, and they stamped something on the page that wasn't there before. It wasn't necessarily the biblical language on that page in Genesis. It said, "Here's the timeline." In fact, as the best of our knowledge, it doesn't seem like Adam. If the person that Adam was in the Bible existed, it doesn't seem as though that he could read or write, um, and whatever his language was is unknown to us. And we did not have this timeline that God stamped on a page or stamped even in a written word that said this is year one going forward, which right. I find is 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 just very compelling to suggest that well maybe we just don't have the timing down because it doesn't seem to be important to God or it's not important in the Bible. Well, in the ancient world, you know how they tended to date things was the year of the of a certain reign of a certain king, and every time a new king came to power, you, you reset the clock, um, and so that was very convenient for certain bureaucratic purposes. But if you are trying to kind of be a chronologist and sort of piece things together, well, you kind of have a little trouble with that, because there's no consistent dating period that you can just use to line things up. Right. Right. And and the fact is that there's also other uh, cultures that pre-existed or at least during the same time as the, the Hebrews that were writing things down. And it seems like there's a correlation between the, the information between the two cultures. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of cultural interchange between, you know, the world of Palestine and Egypt and, the Meta and Mesopotamia. Yeah, well, I thought we'd just zero in on another portion of Genesis and kind of talk about the the flood story. Um, yeah. um, uh, the flood story, it seems like one that exists in many cultures um, across the globe. It's it's one thing that I find so compelling about it is because just how common it is. But of course, the size of it, the the variance yeah. and power of the flood is quite but different. Don't, but don't. Don't forget to notice, though, that not all cultures have flood stories. It kind of depends upon where they are geographically um, situated. You know, if you read the Norse mythology, how does the world end in Norse mythology? And where did what it happens? Come? So in Ragnarok, what actually causes Ragnarok? You have... Well, you have the giants. They, they come across. But the, the thing about, you know, the point I was trying to make is there's this fear of ice in, in Norse mythology. You know, this intruding ice that can destroy the world. Um, 
fire fire and ice together but i, I just meant the, the geography of it right they, they didn't worry about flooding um, but they worried about ice mm. uh, you know whereas of course in mesopotamia living along those two giant rivers that are the very source of life flooding could destroy everything right and it seems like historically they there's definitely times where the floods were much greater and they would have perhaps wiped out many of the villages and people living along the way yeah yeah well, yeah, well, to jump in, um, I, I, I've read over the stories many times. I've read it to my kids many times. Um, kids books do a, a much cleaner version, let's just say, um, uh, rather than focusing on everyone outside the boat, they focus on who's in the boat, um, as, as the Bible tends to do too. But um, it, it was always challenging for me to read because I, it's hard for me to see the love of God when 99.999% of people are, are wiped out. And I, I know there's more to that, which I'm hoping. Well, and it was always challenging for me too. I mean, I remember as a little kid, you know, we'd go to the, the dentist's office and they would have those, those multi-volume blue Bible story books. Uh, do you remember those? Oh, we used to I have don't. a set of them at home. Um, but you used to always see them in doctors and dentist's offices. And if you open it up to the section of, the flood, you see people swimming in the water, banging on the outside of the ark, trying to get in to, to, to survive. And of course, growing up with one set of grandparents that didn't go to church or believe in God, and another set of grandparents that were part of the Catholic Church, that was always very vivid to me because, well, they'd be on the outside of the ark. Indeed. I think I remember drawing a picture of a person tying themselves around the boat so they got a very long string and they ran it around they tried to rope themselves on the outside and i i don't remember feeling an emotion to it right it was just someone trying to survive which right. is a vicious image for a child to draw yeah someone lashing themselves to a boat yeah um now reading through the story uh also, I would have also believed when I was young that it was just one story written one way and it meant one thing. And as I got older and started reading through it, I realized there was these conflicts. There's a conflict where the water come from, well, how long it rained, how long they were in the water, um, and maybe maybe some other conflicts. But I, I thought maybe you could speak to um, the, the, the writer, at least the sources uh, of how this yeah, story was going to fuse. Yeah, this one's a little bit, you know, not quite as easy as the, as the creation story because it's the creation story they just put the stories next to each other for whatever reason the writer the editor of of this part of the bible chose to kind of weave the two stories together um as you're reading it you can kind of pick out uh differences and kind of create narratives uh of those pieces as you're reading it but for whatever reason they just wove the two stories together um you know like the differences are um like how long did the flood last? Well, there's there's two different answers to that. Um, how many how many animals did um, did Noah take on the ark with him? Uh, well, one version says he took seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. Well, later biblical editor realized well you can't have that because the Torah hasn't been revealed on Sinai yet. So they you know their version no Moses or Moses. Noah just takes two of every kind of animal. Um, but for whatever reason, they wove the two stories together and they're both there next to each other. Um, you know, one version talks about how, you know, human sinfulness has essentially corrupted the world and the flood is an attempt to sort of cleanse it of its, of its contamination. 
whereas the other one kind of talks about it more as a punishment for sin. Well, those are those are kind of different interpretations, um, you know, and uh, yeah. So, right, yeah. I I know that when I was a kid, um, in probably teenage years, um, they would have suggested to me, and I recall these these conversations because my my youth pastor at the time was saying, well, it doesn't say every animal, so to speak. That could just be a species, is what he was arguing. Um, and I one thing that I, as I've gotten older, that I, I realized I did this too as a kid, is for some reason, I, I still believed in science. I believe it was important. And I wanted to use science to prove the Bible. I wanted science yeah. to prove that it all made sense. And so anything, I would just lack John to anything that was, oh, that's an answer. That works because... You know, let's be honest. The, the ark would be a, a massive boat to actually encompass every animal. I, I don't. I don't think that's lost on anyone, right? That's well. And of course, the Bible uh, gives you dimensions for the for the ark, though, too. Right. Right. So you know, you have this one fixed um, measurement. When it's like, I don't think the average person can actually comprehend what the fixed size of all these species would be. Not let alone the food they need to survive, whatever the time frame is. Let's say 150 days. Um, not kill each other and rope them off from. Uh, doing their worst or putting poop in some place or getting it off. It apparently these, what would it have been eight people plus their spouses cleaning all the poop out every day. Well, I think it would be the, the eight people that's, that's eight total. Noah and his three sons and their spouses. And so. okay. Yeah. Okay. So eight, yeah, eight total. Um, there's a lot of work there. Let's just put it that way. Um, but for me, you know, kind of going back to our, our first, uh, podcast, a part of it was just this the realization that it was just easier not to think about the difficulty of it or the science of it and that somehow faith was the answer. My faith was supposed to tell me, deny science, deny reality. This is just it because the Bible says it. But then we fast forward and we talk about, well, we maybe have these interwoven texts that could be saying many at least different things um, that maybe were just never the same story. And that kind of helped, well, for some, unwind some of their faith and makes them feel like, well, maybe this isn't true. I, I never went down that road, but I know for many, they just thought, why, why would I have ever thought the flood was real? Why did I think this faith was real? Right, right. It's kind of an all or nothing proposition in their mind. Right. Um, and, and that's that's the troubling thing in our society. And I know this is one of the conflicts we have uh, across even denominations, but there's this ongoing war of deciding what's actually the true and accurate answer and when the outside world's looking at us and they, they look at different things, uh, I know that when I was at Bellingham, um, they always picked at certain topics, uh, right? So it would have been um, like the flood story. Be like, why would you think this is real? Like that might be something uh, someone coming from an outside a religious scope would just think this is laughable. But on the other side, and, and I think you see this a lot today, there's a pride in denying science. There's a pride in almost... The, almost the difference between reality and what's and what well, and I think that, that strikes me as a fairly recent innovation, because I think that when I was in high school, there was still an attempt to reconcile science with a literal, you know, reading of the scripture. Um, it seems that 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 sort of postmodern turn has really happened since then. Do you think so? Or do you? Yeah, or, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I think that in the last maybe 20 years, that's been more the case. I think that seeing news articles and, and groupings talking about evangelicals believe there's definitely more of a sentiment that I feel like in the 90s, science was something Christians were using to win the battle. 
right. somewhere, somewhere, something. I'm not sure if there was an event that occurred, but there was a point where it just said we need to abandon this because we need to strive and close to our faith. So well, it, it also kind of corresponds with the time when postmodernity, postmodernity really started to to filter down from the academic from the academic world. Um, you know, the irony is postmodernism leaves a lot of places open for a lot of different groups, including people that want to interpret the Bible literally. Mm. Mm. That's that's interesting because I, I, you know, I went to college, two thousand one, two thousand five, and I definitely we discussed postmodernism. Uh, it's interesting to suggest that that could have filtered down into religiosity eventually, and and maybe just the end user, so to speak. And now these gaps make it easier on their mindset. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, in, you know, basically, some interpretations of postmodernism basically argue that there is no objective reality, that there's, in fact, just all of our little individual realities. Hmm. Um, well, that leaves a lot of room for everybody, essentially, for alternative facts. Um, there is no objective reality. Um, and, and so I think that leaves... That, that creates a space that you, you no longer have to appeal to science. You know, during modernism in the United States, science was the ultimate arbiter of truth and reality, you know, and you can't appeal to science anymore uh, because right. postmodernism doesn't give science that privileged position anymore. Yeah, I want to jump back to what you said about alternate facts. And I wanted, since that's a buzzword, that's a buzzword since, whatever, 2018, to, well, what year was that? 2019, that language hit the news frequently. When you use the word alternate facts, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not trying to use it. I mean, it is a buzzword, correct. But I didn't mean it to, to use it in that political sense. I meant it in more the general sense that now people do not believe that their facts match, have to match up with other people's facts. That's what I meant. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, it, you know, I essentially can deny someone else's reality. Yeah. Okay. And and I think that's still, I think that's still fair. And kind of from a legal kind of background, when when this issue came up, and I want to say it was 2019, um, and I was it Betsy DeVos? I feel like is the one that. No, was... no, it was actually earlier than that because it was around. Um, it was about the. Um, uh, it was in 2017. Because it involved the number of people that attended the. Uh, oh yes. The yes, inauguration. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I. Okay. Yeah. That's that's. Yeah. So. So one of the questions would be, what are the objective facts of how many people app, uh, uh, attend uh, the not uh, what is it called? Not inauguration. No, it was inauguration. Yeah. Presidential. Yeah, inauguration. Uh, so the question is, you have these images, and obviously the exact number is difficult to count, but you can use these images. You can compare other eras. Uh, where it was maybe easier to count and they had better understanding, and that someone could say, no, it was the largest of all time, even though objectively these images suggest that, no, it couldn't have been, there's no way it could have been. But someone could say that, which then goes back to what you're saying, like competing with someone's reality. Now, I, 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 jumping ahead, some somewhere along like Betsy DeVos, I think it was, I get her confused with the other one, but she was a lawyer. And she was talking about alternative facts, and and just no, no, so you no, know, that's that's Devos. I don't believe is a lawyer. She was secretary what, of education. Yes. What is the uh, what is you're talking about? Kellyanne Conway. Yes, Kelly. She was the one who said it. She was a lawyer, and there was a possible disbarment for her. But what was most important was she, she was talking about alternative facts. That is not language we use in the law. 
Uh, when we when we write complaints, I write facts, what we call facts. And facts can be different, but they're also the facts that are supported by evidence. So as most people know, when two people are arguing their position about something, um, they might not agree with each other, but they both are considered credible until they're not credible. And a jury then weighs who they decide is right. And, and this is a very basic overview. So it's not so much that one of them has alternative fact. It's more that this person says this, that car was red that drove through the red light. And the other person says like, no, it was a green light and it was a blue car. And they weigh their, where their view, their vantage point was, were they wearing, you know, glasses or did they have a good view? Was the sun in their eyes? And the jury ultimately decides really whose story is right. And, and that's why they're called the fact finder. They decide what the true facts are. And, and so when she was talking about these alternative facts in the law, we don't actually make up, we don't make up facts that aren't supported by evidence or testimony and throw it on a page. Those are typically called arguments, um, which is why my, my last little kind of solo podcast was describing why there's a difference between facts and arguments and knowing the difference is critical for people because right. if, if you knew someone was arguing something, you would treat it differently than someone who said this is factual. Right. Um, but jumping back into it, uh, we're getting, let's see, we're about 25 minutes. So I think we, we're getting close to close this one up. Uh, we, we recovered uh, Noah's Ark and the 6,000 kind of year question. Um, we're, we're hoping to jump into the big one, abortion, uh, gun rights, those kinds of things, and kind of how it's affected the church. Uh, and when I say church, I do mean the whole uh, culmination of Christianity, and but maybe how it affected me as a kid growing up in evangelical uh, tradition, evangelical tradition. Um, uh, it, any last thoughts about this this portion of, of the segment? Oh, goodness. Um, well, we talked about a lot. I don't know if I have anything to add at this point. Quite all right. I just want to ask. Uh, okay, well, we'll just move to the end. We want to thank you all for, for listening today, uh, and we want to wish you shalom.